iTunes account. I don't know if that's old or not anymore. Is that okay? That's, that's semi-young? All right. So I got it. One of um, Cameron's predecessors set it up for me. And so one of the songs that I, I bought was that David Crowder song. That just I love that song, the theology that's in it. Just It's very powerful and very moving, and I love to listen to it. And I'm sitting there watching them lead us in that worship and seeing Coop up here. And Coop's in middle school, 6th, 7th grade, 8th grade, somewhere like just to see a, a young man I've basically known his whole life. And so he just, I didn't I guess there's nothing Coop can't do. I don't know. He does, he does sound for us. He, he sings. And, and uh, I know he plays tennis. And I even ruined him one year coaching him in basketball. And... Coop, I'm proud of you, man. And um, I just appreciate uh, all, all of them. Uh, I'm jealous of talent. Is it wrong to be jealous? Probably so. But, uh, I didn't get that talent. I just got good looks. But My sweet wife the other day, and again, thank you for your prayers. God's just in the last two weeks just wrought a miracle in her life. I left this morning. She was mopping the floor. I said, there is a God, because I do anything, but I can't cook because people would die, but she's even been up cooking and can't get enough to eat. Uh, two weeks ago, she wouldn't eat at all. It's just amazing what God has wrought through, through medicine, through doctors, but just uh, in his will and his time, he's done it, and just watching her mop the floor, because I'll throw a wet paper towel down here and take my foot and move it around on the spot where I've spilled something, but uh, beyond that, I'm not... I did that for three years while I was in college. I was a church janitor. You ever want to be humble, that's what you need to do for a job, be church janitor for three years. I had a guy one time, I was the church janitor, and this was one of the mega churches here in town and where I'd gotten saved, and I thought this would be the coolest job in the world. And then as a church janitor, you begin to find out what people are really like, including the preacher. And others, and I began to realize, is your focus on them or is it on Jesus? It's time for you to you know, get, get this together, man. So... There's a guy come in. I mean, I, it was a, I had three or three guys that worked for me, but, I mean, it was a big deal to get set up for Sunday morning. Uh, and, and this guy came in. You know, I saw some dust bunnies over in the corner. And I said, I better bite my tongue and go uh, do something else. And so the same guy, like a week later, I was also in charge of outside the building. And so we're outside, and they were doing some construction on the property. And, and, and we're standing there. Now, you got to understand, I'm a college student. I'm 19, 20, 21, somewhere along it. So... We're standing outside, and we're looking at where they've been doing construction, and the grass is not growing. And he, he keeps saying, and I'm not making this up, he keeps saying, you need to do something about all this, this uh, debris here. If you'll get rid of all this debris, then, then our grass can start growing. And I'm thinking, I'm in college, and I'm semi-intelligent. I've got like a 4.0 average. I have no idea what debris is. And I'm thinking, is that a special kind of grass he wants to grow here? You know, he was a deacon, and I didn't know, you know, you don't want to tick off a deacon. That's in the Bible somewhere. Thou shalt not tick off a deacon. So I didn't want to hack him off. And finally, I, I couldn't help myself because he, he had hacked me off the following Sunday about the dust money. So I looked at him, and I said, man, do you, by any chance, are you talking about debris? <laughs> and he went, you know, debris. All this junk on top of the ground. I said, well, the real English, that word is pronounced debris. And... I thought, well, I won't be working here next week. 
But thank God my father was chairman of the father, soon to be father-in-law. Or he was my father-in-law at that point. was chairman of the elders. So I figured, all right, I, maybe I'll make it another week. So my very first night on that job, we were, we were mopping in the auditorium. And I wasn't the guy in charge at that point. I just, I was the new janitor. And I'm mopping the, up, had a balcony in the building. And I'm, it's about literally my first night on the job. And my brother-in-law happened to be my boss. You know how to get brother-in-law, get your job, whatever. So I'm up here and I'm mopping the floor. He sends me up here, just mop the floor and get it and get it ready, get it clean for Sunday. And I spill the mop bucket. Well, I'm thinking, okay, I'll just mop it up. I get. But I didn't realize the mop when you know water. A plumber. I learned this later from a friend that was a plumber. Water runs which direction? I also learned something else, but I'll let you figure that out. So, water runs down. And all of a sudden, I hear my brother-in-law go, Randy, what are you doing? And I run downstairs, and all the, the water that I had spilled had run through the floor and was just soaking the pews on, the, on the, the last two rows on the second floor. He goes, now you know i got to mop the floor. you got to get that off those pews before we leave here tonight. So I said, well, I won't be working here next week. But I managed to squeeze through. But it's so cool to, to uh, see a young man like Coop and... Uh, his heart, his love for Jesus, that's, that's just kind of cool. And uh, that's what, when I originally got in the ministry, Coop, years ago, first thing I ever did as a volunteer was teach, are you in the 6th, 7th, 8th grade? Seven. I taught 7th grade boys. That was the very first thing. I, nobody else wanted them. <laughs> there was like 20 of them in the church. They said, who's going to do the 7th grade boys? And nobody would do it. And I said, well, I, I, I guess I can do that. And, and I loved it. And I had a great time. And some of those guys are still, my, they're in their 50s now, and they're still friends of mine to this day. So uh, I love you, man. I appreciate you. Uh, our whole worship team, they do a tremendous job. All right, take your Bibles and turn to Romans 12. Romans 12. I want to kind of catch you up in what we're doing here. We're doing over the next few weeks. Uh, take a little pause next week. Got something special for you next week, but... Uh, We'll see. But this has really been a passion for me leading into the new year that we would understand as the body of Jesus Christ. Number one, how significant it is that we're part of that body, that we're, we talked about last week, that we're part of something that's bigger than us. And, it, and it's the most significant institution that's ever been on planet Earth, the church of Jesus Christ, that we are in the church age. We are in the last days until Jesus comes back we are the institution through which, the organism through which, Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to the world. It's a special privilege to be a Christian. Tremendous calling on our lives, and I want us to understand what it means to be genuine. I know this is the title of, of this particular, uh, these few weeks that we're looking at, is The Loving Church, in Romans 12, 9 through 21. But it also very easily could be titled, as we mentioned last week, The Genuine Church, because that's literally what it's talking about here. If you look at verse 9, Verse 9, it's a theme of the entire section. We're looking at 9 through 21. Romans 12, 9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. And we talked about that phrase, without hypocrisy, means to be genuine, with no uh, wax in you, That's a, that, it's a, that you're, you're, uh, have no cracks, that you're genuine, what you see is who you are. And that it is vital that we as the church understand that. Last week, we were talking about what it means to love each other. We began talking about loving we're going to talk about loving each other, fellow believers, and we're going to, then we're going to talk about what it means to love those who are not believers, those that are outside the church, those who don't know Christ, those that we want to reach. Uh, Peter was, was sharing earlier about 
of the significance of having hope. And you've heard me say many times, but my favorite word in the Bible to describe being a Christian is the word hope. That the word in the, in the New Testament in Greek literally means confident expectation. That my hope, that's why I love that, that David Crowder song, my hope is in Jesus. It's not in the government. It's not in my bank account, thank God. It's not, it's not in anything but the person of Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul put it. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is what? Able to keep what I've committed unto him against that day. And the day being the judgment day, the end time. Everything, when, when the Lord wraps everything up and Jesus comes back and judgment day rolls in, I know that I'm not going to be at the great white throne judgment for non-believers. Why? Because I'm a really good guy and I've been on staff of the church for 37 years? No. Because I married the right person? No, even though I did. Why? Because my hope's in Jesus. That I'm with him. You know, like it's like showing up at a, a really good party and, and you can't get in. And you say, well, I'm with Darren. He said, all right, well, come on in. I said, I'm with Jesus. So I know that I'm in. Not because I'm righteous of my own. It's because I am in Christ. That's why it's Paul's. If you read the epistles of Paul, you want to do, it's a cool little Bible study. Take you a piece of paper. I know nobody does this but me. Take a piece of paper and write at the top of it, in Christ, or Christ in me. And then go through the epistles of Paul. Forget the rest of the New Testament. Just the epistles of Paul and make your bullet points underneath where he says, I'm in Christ, Christ in me. And just write just like a little brief synopsis of what he says every time. And then step back and read that. And you will be so thrilled of what you are in Jesus Christ. What it means to be a Christian. The word literally means little Christ. So why this sermon? Well, because, this message. Because I want to make sure we understand that it has to begin with, it all begins with, and it all flows from being in Christ. Beginning with, the Bible talks about judgment begins at the house of God. But beginning with, loving begins with, if we can't love each other, are we going to love non-believers? Probably not. Would we like to see them saved? Yeah, Maybe. What you're going to see as we walk through these verses is that it has to become an absolute passion of ours that others who don't know Jesus are born again, saved, converted, redeemed, whatever term you want to use, adopted into the family of God, term after term after term it's used in the Bible, that they are born again, that they come to know Christ, that they understand the hope that we understand. So last week we were talking about loving each other in, in all the different ways, what that means. So the, if you look at point one on your handout, loving fellow believers, to sincerely to love them and, and serve them devotedly. And then we finished in verse 11. That's what we're going to pick up today. Verse 11, that we're spiritually diligent. Now, this is really important. For me to be everything that God wants me to be, in the body of Christ. And I'm talking about Randy as a pastor. I'm talking about Randy as a Christian. It applies to all of us as, as children of God. If you're born again, if you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower. I have to be spiritually diligent. Not to point out the sins in your life. That's fun. You know, I love to just to call Cameron up and say, you know, I heard this about you and it's ridiculous. Now, I love to point out the sins in Steve's life because there are many. What this is talking about and it's vital we understand this. For me to serve you devotedly, for me to 
And then in the position of leadership, it's even amplified more for me to be your brother in Christ. In my case, a shepherd for you. Is I have to be spiritually diligent. What that means is constantly examining not your life, but whose life? Mine. Mine. To never be satisfied, to always hold it up to the standard of Christ's likeness and realize I'm going to fall short of that. And that's where confession of sins coming in, agreeing with the Holy Spirit that that was wrong and that I don't want that in my life and that I had a, a, a sorry attitude and that I need to get that right. I was sharing with my first hour class this morning that I spent an hour and a half on uh, the phone with one of the, the supervisors of the Food and Drug Administration in Los Angeles about a week and a half ago, and I was not kind because he had the power to release my wife's medicine that's been sitting in L.A. Customs since October 1st, and I got a little snippy with him. When, I, when I, I finally said to him, I'm calling you back in two weeks, and my wife's medicine better be released. I don't know what else to tell you. And so I, he got it released that day. We got off the phone, and he called, and we got the medicine in the mail this week. So it's been sitting since October 1st. It was in my mailbox this week. So I sent him an email thanking him and apologizing for my attitude. My attitude was not good, and it was wrong. Now, it accomplished what I wanted it, what I needed accomplished, but probably not in the most Christ-like of ways. Now, am I perfect? Don't answer that. Of course not. Do I want to be? Yes. That's what it means to be spiritually diligent. So I want you to notice verse 11. Here's where we left off last week. Verse 11. Not lagging in diligence. And then this phrase. Fervent in spirit. As I'm serving you. What this means is spiritually diligent. As I look at my life, fervent in spirit literally means attitude. That my attitude would, not, not all my actions, because I'm not perfect, but that my attitude is I want to be everything that God saved me to be so that I can benefit you. The Greek phrase that's used here, fervent in spirit, literally describes this. It's something that you've put on under a, a fire, whether it's water or whatever it might be, and it's boiling to produce the sufficient heat you need to get something done. In other words, you're boiling water to the point you can use that water. That's the picture in Greek. Henry Martin, who's a great missionary to India years ago, said this about his life. He said, quote, I want to burn out for God. A lot of people that are in the ministry get burnt out. That's not what he meant. He just meant, I want to flame and be everything that God wants me to be, and then just burn till my candle is done and burn out for God. The guy that discipled me for years, you heard me talk about Wayne Barber and how much he meant in my life, and for me and Chris and Scott Jones in particular, through Precept Ministries, and how much Wayne meant to us. And, and he was a, uh, about my age and, and a few years younger, and I heard him speak. He was here in town, and I went to hear him speak. And Wayne was a big man, like 6'7", 280, played college basketball, and he was sharing with us from Galatians that night, and he just starts crying. I want to say he was in his early 60s at the time. He just starts crying. He'd been in ministry for a long time. 
And he said, I don't know how much longer the Lord has me on the planet, but I want to finish my race well. This was a guy who had done tremendous things for the kingdom. But he said, I haven't done enough. Never satisfied that attitude. Here's how Wayne died. He was preaching. He died just a couple, two or three years ago. And he was preaching at Billy Grant's place called The Cove in North Carolina. He was there doing a conference and he was speaking and went back to his, his hotel room. He preached, went back to his hotel room and died. That's the way to go. Either that or do it right here. You, you know, just, and you just move out of the way. Man, love Jesus. He said, I just want to finish well. There's a story told of John Wesley. John Wesley's, many of you know, the, the guy who... Uh, started the Methodist Church. And John Wesley got kicked out of the Anglican, Anglican Church because he was preaching the Bible. Hard to believe. And he was preaching the Bible and, and uh, in, in errance and teaching the, uh, preaching the gospel. So they kicked the Anglican Church, kicked him out. He started the Methodist. And he just started preaching out in fields where people were, farmers and others. And he was just out in the fields preaching. And so this one little community said, you know, they heard about this John Wesley guy, and these guys got together and said, you know, if he comes to our town, we're going to go to his meeting, and we're just going to beat him up. We're going to teach him. So that was their plan. Wesley was out there preaching in their little village, and they came to watch him preach, and we're just going to beat, beat him up when it was over. or in the middle of it. So they get there, and they're headed up to get him, and they just stop. And this is their testimony later. They said, we're watching him preach. And it's like he was glowing. And we just couldn't, we just couldn't do it. So we stopped and we listened to him. And every one of them got saved. And that was their testimony that God... Now, did John Wesley know that was going on? Not really. What was John Wesley doing? He was just burning out for God. He was just doing what the Lord sent him to do. And you don't know. God says, I want you fervent in spirit. Remember, this has nothing to do with you. It's, it's the attitude you have toward I want to be everything that God wants me to be. It's like your spirit's glowing so that others can see it. And if you read the book of, of the prophet of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, he was called the weeping prophet because he preached for 50 years and had no positive response at all in 50 years. That'd be tough. And at one point, and I love the Bible because it's just real. At one point in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, I just can't do this anymore. I just can't. It, nobody listens. I'm wasting my time. I just can't do it anymore. And then he says, but I can't stop because it's a fire in my bones. Quote. I got to let it burn. It's a fire in my bones. That's what fervent in spirit is. That I want have an attitude of how can I be diligent in my own life spiritually so that you benefit from it. The next phrase there in verse 11. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And the idea here is in the text in which this was written context and in the Greek is that I get the attitude that I'm fervent in spirit. I want to do everything I can to be a servant. Then it results in serving the Lord. In other words, the action that results from the attitude, my perspective gets right, and then my priorities change, and then my actions change. If you, re if you study scripture closely, every time it talks about faith, 
Abraham believed God. The word means faith. The verb or noun. Believe one's a noun, one's a verb. Same words. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous, born again, because he had faith. But you know how it's described? You know how his faith is described? Abraham believed God and he went. God said, I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land I will show you. Leave everything you know, and Abraham was very well off. Leave everything you know and go to Ur of the Chaldees, a place you never heard of. I'm preparing it for you. So leave this and go. And the Bible says Abraham got up and went. In other words, he had faith. Faith redeemed him. But the faith that he had redeemed him resulted in what? Obedience. And that's what you always see in Scripture. Faith inexorably leads to obedience. The obedience doesn't save you. The obedience is the result of the fact you've been saved. So fervent in spirit, having the right attitude, now as believers in the church, fervent in spirit then results in, look at verse 11 again, you're fervent in spirit, and the very next thing you're doing is what? Serving the Lord. Why? Because you want to. Remember, I'm not doing anything I do so I can notch my Bible, so I can impress you, so so that I can... I know I'm going to get into heaven because I've done all these things. I've checked all the right boxes. No, I'm doing it because I've got a new nature. I'm in Christ. A little assignment I gave you a moment ago. I'm in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're going to do Christ-like things. Ever read 1 Corinthians 13? How many have ever been to a wedding? Some of you have never been to a wedding. Well, that's... If you've ever been to a wedding, probably you've seen 1 Corinthians 13 somewhere. Even if you haven't seen it in church. Love never fails. Love is patient, and everybody's crying. Love is patient, love is kind. Either somebody's reading it, or it's printed somewhere. If you go back and you study that, that's right in the middle of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, right in the middle is 1 Corinthians 13. I did math in college, even though I went to Memphis, it was college. 12, 13, 14. So 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. It's a description of Jesus Christ. It never seeks its own. Unselfish. It trusts. It believes. That's the picture. So attitude, fervent in spirit, results, results in I serve the Lord, which means I serve you. Why? Because that's where God has placed us. I'm getting ready to start a series here in a couple of weeks. I'm really excited about. It's a book I bet we're going to do by a show of hands. How many of you have ever studied in depth the book of Esther? A few, I'm impressed. Bring me your notes. I've never done it. I've read it and read through it and even taught a lesson or two on it, but I've never. We're going to study the book of Esther in depth because you know, what the, you know how many times God is mentioned in the book of Esther? Zero. A lot of people didn't believe it should be part of the canon of Scripture. It's a fascinating book. God's never mentioned once. You know why? Because it's about the providence of God. You don't see Him, but He's what? Always working. It's a powerful book. Got a great message. You know what the message of the book of Esther is? This is your time. Yo, why? Oh, this is your time. I made to be the title of the series. This is your time. It was Esther's time. Step up. If you're alive, you're breathing, and you know Jesus Christ, guess what this is? It's your time. As bad a time as it is, and it's crazy, it's still your time right now. So you got a little preview that won't start that and whenever I finish this, a couple of years. Okay. The idea here of the fervent in spirit 
again in Greek, if you're boiling water, and I've been boiling a lot of water lately, trying to figure out how to cook something, which I can't do, but to do this, do this, when water boils, do this. So I'm watching water boil. You know, a watch pot never boils. You can quote me on that if you like. But you know, if you leave like to go uh, uh, to the bathroom or go pick up the mail, guess what that water does? It boils over. I thought you might want to know that. Okay. The idea of fervented spirit in the original language is like water that you're boiling. When it reaches that point, that's fervent in spirit. That's the picture that God wants us to have. Like superheated metal, if you, if you heat metal, you get, you get that red glow. That's fervent in spirit in the original language. Serving the Lord is the action that results from being fervent in spirit. And by the way, again, another great picture in the original language. It means you're a servant because you choose to do bondservant. We've talked about that before. The bondservant in the Bible. Paul always described himself as a bondservant. It means I serve someone because I want to. Not because they own me, even though Jesus owns me. I don't serve him because he owns me. I serve him because I want to. That's the, that's the word. I want to serve, Jesus, serve the Lord, which ends up serving you because I want to. It's what a believer does. It's Paul's repeated identification of himself. That I, that's who I am. That's who I want to be. I want to serve God, which means I end up serving you. For example, if you read through the Gospels, another assignment, the next week your homework will be due, and I expect to. Don't tell me the dog ate it. Okay. If you read through the Gospels where Jesus is referred to, he's referred to as Savior about ten times. You know how many times he's referred to as Lord or Master? Probably in the whole New Testament. Lord or Master, you know how many times he's referred to? About ten times the word Savior is used. Lord, Master is 700. Why? There's a message there. God doesn't do anything haphazardly by accident. The message is when I come to Jesus Christ to be my Savior, I surrender to him as my Lord, my Master. He owns the universe and we're his bride. We will inherit all of that one day. Joint heirs with Christ. So he says in the interim, serve me. Jesus himself describing himself. How did he describe himself? I came to serve and to die. We die to serve. That's what it means to be a Christian. Psalm 123, the Bible says this. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. And the idea in Hebrew is this. Let's say we'll use Brock because he's such a handsome young man. I was going to use Cameron, but I don't want to stare at Cameron. So I'm just teasing. So we'll use Brock. The idea in here is such a beautiful, Hebrew has some incredible, beautiful poetry and, and metaphorical images. Here's the one in Psalm 123. Brock is my master. He, he would like that. And the idea is this. That I'm staring at the face of my master until he says, good boy. You ever have a dog? I love dogs. 47 years ago, Mary and I got married and I had to make a decision, a dog or Mary. I had two dogs growing up and I absolutely love dogs. Uh, I chose Mary, probably a good choice. I love dogs. 
But the idea in Hebrew is that whether your master, the maid with the mistress and me with the master, is that you're staring at the master till he says, well done. Now, holding your hands out till he says, now go do something else. Here's what I want you to do. For example, all of us, our goal, you see it with, with Stephen when he died, the first Christian martyr. All of us, when we die, what is our goal? I want to stand before Jesus. I'm in, I'm in because I'm his child. I'm born again. I'm going to heaven when I die. Stop, not, I'm not hoping I go. I know I am in Christ. Confident expectation. But what do I want to hear from Jesus? What do I want to hear? Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Not perfect, but well done. Because I know I'm not perfect. Hey, Jesus knows I'm not perfect. And yet he still uses me. Desires to use me. Allows me. That's the picture in Psalm 123. Master, what, where do you want me to go now with these hands? What do you want me to do next? Not what can I get from you. That's how you know somebody's a false teacher. When it's, if it's all about you getting, you getting, you getting. No, it's all about you giving. Giving back to Christ who's given you everything because you're in him. Jim Elliott, and many of you may have heard of Jim Elliott, a famous missionary who martyred for his faith. And he was martyred, he was like 20, 28 years old when he died on the mission field. He was slaughtered by the Indians, Arca Indians. And he said this, quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Read it again. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which you cannot lose. You give your life, Jesus said. You lose your life for me. You gain it. So he wrote a prayer. He had a, a journal that he kept. And he wrote a prayer in that journal just shortly before he was slaughtered by the Alka Indians. 28 years old. So young. Said the, his prayer said these words. God, I pray, light these idle sticks of my life and may I burn for you. Consume my life, my God, for it is yours. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit, that I may be a flame. But flame is often short-lived. Can you bear this, my soul, short life? In me there dwells the spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for God's house consumed him. Make me your fuel, flame of God. What a beautiful prayer. I hope it's a prayer of our hearts. I don't know how long God... We, we do everything we can to stay on planet Earth forever. When for a believer, the day you die is the best day of your life. You go home. And I'm not lining up. We're not, we don't have a bus on the parking lot where we're all going to get on today, today to go to heaven. But if you're a believer, it's okay. Because you're going to paradise but in the interim, I just love Jim Elliott's story. If you've never read the story of Jim Elliott, you need to, Christian biographies are a great thing to read to motivate you. They're easy to read and they're great motivational tools. Read Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place and you will be on your knees. You'll be embarrassed at your zeal for God when you read that. I know I was. But Jim Elliott's uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship. What a powerful World War II uh, executed in the uh, German concentration camp. None of us are, are wanting to go out and get 
be slaughtered for our faith. But what we are hopefully wanting is to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, not just getting by and not appreciating being saved. That's not good enough. Jesus is your Lord and master. What can you do for him? Hebrews chapter 6, the Bible says this. God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints, and you do minister. That's the same word as serve. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. End quote. Labor of love. That whatever I can do for the body of Christ, all the work that I do, it's a labor of love. Because it's about eternal things. Not just, maybe may be something as simple as just helping someone pay a bill. That's okay. You've still done something for someone simply out of love. Jesus said, give someone a cup of water in my name. That's a powerful thing. All right, next point on your handout, verse 12. Steadfastly. We're not giving, we're not giving up. It's not a come, this is not an off and on, up and down. It's every day. This is who I am. Verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Remember the context. Let love be without hypocrisy or be genuine. These things that are mentioned here in verse 12, rejoicing in hope, Patient in tribulation, continually steadfastly in prayer. It's how we love each other. Or why in the process we're doing this. Rejoicing in hope. Right now. No matter circumstances. Circumstances are good. And then they might be horrible the next day. Or shortly thereafter. And then they may get good again. Or they may just rock along every day and be about the same. Circumstances are circumstances. You read through the Bible, Joseph was in just horrible circumstances and God elevated him to the second most powerful man in the world. Same thing with Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were looking at being burnt to death and God miraculously intervened and they came out with not even the smell of smoke on them. But then there are others like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others who died horrible deaths. Bonhoeffer, the Nazi gas chambers, and others for their faith. They died horrible deaths. So God, the book of Daniel, that, that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is so beautiful because the king says, can your God save you? What did they say? Our God is able, but if he doesn't, we will still praise him. Can God save through the fire? The answer is yes. The answer in that case is he did. But the answer could have been no, he did not. Is he still God? Yes. Yes. So you begin with rejoicing in hope, verse 12. In other words, you see beyond the circumstances to what awaits you as a believer. No matter what the circumstances are, you know who you are in Christ. And so you take the circumstances, resting in Christ, securing Christ, 
And whatever the circumstances are, good or bad, or just there, you want, at that moment, those circumstances, your prayer is, God, how can I glorify you and serve others in the midst of these circumstances? Not in anything else. Romans chapter 8, you don't have to turn back there, but it says this. Paul says, we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. Why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. God is in our midst right now as we share his word. Do you see him? No. But he's here. Jesus told Nicodemus that. He said, you... Can you see the wind? What a, no. Can you see what the wind does? Yes. I don't see God in the building. If you see God in the building, more power to you. I know he's here. I've seen God do some amazing things through friends, providing medicine, and through doctors. And I've seen him miraculously heal my wife in the last two weeks through doctors and medicine and friends, providing stuff. That's the method he chose. But from October to two weeks ago, her life was miserable. To the point that we didn't, weren't sure she was going to live miserable. But God, in his moment and in his time, changed that. His way. Not mine, did and her prayers were so beautiful during that time. Lord, I love you, and, and I want to glorify you. And just, I was embarrassed at how weak mine were, watching her pray, praying together. We were rejoicing in hope. And, and for those people that are out there, and they're false teachers, they're telling you, if you're hurting like that, Mary, there's some sin in your life. They don't need to be around my wife, I can promise you that. They might not make it out. A godly person will have difficult circumstances. It's just the way it is. How do I know that's the way it is? Because I've seen it. But I also know that's what scripture says. It rains on the just and the unjust. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're not going to have health problems despite our prosperity gospel preachers. You are going to have, how do I know you're going to have health problems? Because I got some. And I know we could go around the room. Some of you are suffering physically some very difficult things. Does that mean you don't love Jesus? Of course not. Matter of fact, you probably love him more as a result. It draws you closer to him. We rejoice in hope. Now the next two, patient and tribulation, back to verse 12. Patient and tribulation and continuing steadfastly in prayer, that's how you rejoice in hope. You're patient. We just talked about it. Before Jesus died on the cross, in the upper room that last night he's with the disciples, it's called the upper room discourse, John 13 through 17, one of my favorite sections of the entire Bible. It's beautiful, all the stuff he's teaching. He's about to go be crucified the next day. And he says this to the 11 guys in the room. 
that he's passing the mantle to to carry on and he's going to be with them, but to carry on. They don't want him to go and they're terrified. Let not your heart be in trouble. He said that several times because their hearts were troubled. But he also said these words in that room that night. In this world, you will have trials and tribulations, but take heart because I have overcome the world. What did Jesus say? In this world, you what? Will have trials and tribulations. Now, was he lying to them? Go, go read history. He wasn't lying, was he? So we will have trials and tribulations. But what was the next thing he said? But take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, this was prior to the crucifixion. And he's saying, I've overcome the world. And the next day, they see him crucified. And you know what their response was? I guess he wasn't the Messiah after all. It took him a while to get it. Jesus said, I have already, past tense, present results, I've already overcome. Remember, he's God and he has no time constraints. I've already overcome. He hadn't gone to the cross yet and he hadn't risen from the dead yet, but he'd already overcome. It's important that we understand, despite our circumstances, we have already won. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead and I'm in Christ. So I've already won. Does that mean it's going to be easy? Of course not. He promised me it's going to be hard. If he promised me it's going to be hard, what does that mean? It's going to be hard. What did Paul tell Timothy? If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Timothy, you will suffer persecution. Not maybe. By the way, did Paul ever have any problems? Read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Did he ever have any problems? Man, it's a whole list of stuff he went through. Left for dead, poisonous snakes, shipwrecked, stoned, on and on. Eventually martyred. All of those guys were eventually martyred, as far as we know. Some we know for sure, some tradition says. But regardless, they suffered. So for teachers and preachers, and there are a lot of them out there today, that promise you you're never going to have problems if you have enough faith. I'm telling you they're lying to you. Because that's not what the Bible says. It's not what history says. It's not what your own life says. Or the lives of others. And that's why this rejoicing in hope is so important. Being patient. Romans chapter 5, the Bible says this. Having been justified by faith, and that means being born again, you're a Christian. Having been saved, we have peace with God. I love that phrase. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, that's who we, that's who we are, where we are. Not only that, Paul says, we also glory in tribulations. Let us pause for a moment. Did you hear what he just said? I didn't say that. The Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul to say that, who had gone through horrible things. Has him write to the church at Rome with glory in tribulation. Why? Well, he answers that. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. Hope does not disappoint. 
because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, because we are justified by faith, we can glory in tribulations because the process of going through the tribulation produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope, which glorifies God, and people see it. And they're drawn to that because they're looking for hope. Do you don't think we got a nation full of people looking for hope right now? Don't know what to do, don't know where to turn, don't know what answers, where answers are found. You do. Do you have the answer to the pandemic? No. But you do have the answer to peace, hope, and a meaningful life because you know Jesus Christ. You're not omniscient, but he is. You're not omnipresent, but the Holy Spirit is. We rejoice in hope. We persevere. And then the last one, we continue in prayer. We continue in prayer. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. Depend on Jesus. Talk to him. I don't want you to raise your hands. But I want you to think. In your prayer life. If you're like me and for years, and I hope I'm not that way anymore, but at times I know I am. That I only go to God in prayer when I what? I desperately need something. Paul says pray without ceasing. Does that mean 24-7 you should be moving your lips? Of course not. What it means is I've got a constant attitude. Lord, I'm communicating with you. What do you want? What's the best way to cut the yard? That kind of thing. Now how can I have a positive testimony in the midst of this, Lord? Give me, I can't tell you how many times walking into a meeting or walking to, to talk to someone, whether it's, lately it's been doctors and, and uh, ER people and Food and Drug Administration people and custom people and post office people. And sometimes I do well, and then sometimes like the day, other day, I don't do so well. But you know what my prayer is? Every time, Lord, I need wisdom. I need to respond here the way you would have me respond. I need to handle this in a way that honors you. Continuing in prayer, Jesus taught us so much about it, particularly what we call the Lord's Prayer. But remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, we just talked about the Upper Room Discourse, and he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was praying before he went. He said, I'm going to go over here and pray. Now remember now, he's about to go die for their sins, the guys that Peter, James, and John. He said, I'm going to go over here and pray. What would I like you boys to do? Watch and Pray. It comes back. What are they doing? Taking a nap. Taking a nap. And if you read closely, read all the gospel accounts, it happened about four times. He said, I need you to watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. I need you to watch and pray. Would that same principle apply to our lives today? Of course it does. Watch and pray, lest you what? Fall into temptation. Stay close. Not that's why spending time in the word of God, spending time talking to who your God is. The Greek phrase continuing in prayer there in verse 12 means constant devotion to it, continuing. It's not just your religious thing you do every now and then, you pray, like, like you know, I have a daily devotional, that's good. No, it's that I'm constantly devoted. Tribulation leads to prayer, which leads to patience. James chapter 1 says this, Consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. 
And that phrase, the original language, says, count it all joy when you fall into daily trials. And they were about to meet a guy named Nero. With one perpetual trial. One perpetual trial. He said, it's important to you. We're going to end there today. Simply because we're out of time. We will finish this up. But I want to close. I want us to think about this as, as we pray. Would you bow your heads? Father, again, we want to thank you that you have allowed us, called us, chosen us, saved us for this time. We want to be devoted to you, serving you as we're diligent to examine our own hearts and make sure we're where we need to be with you and then be devoted to you, which will lead us to love each other. That's what this is all about, being a loving church, a genuine church, that we legitimately care for one another despite our differences and our disagreements, that I always want what's best for the other person. How can I spiritually enhance the life of the other person? Whoever it is. And even as we begin to transition into looking at witnessing, sharing that love with non-believers, that I would care about them. Even though they may hate what I stand for and be vehemently against it, that I still love them. That's the way Jesus, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That I have that mindset. I thank you for Christ Church and the privilege of serving. I thank you for the folks that are here, those that are watching. Lord, I simply pray as we close out our time together that each of us would be spiritually diligent to examine our hearts before you, beginning with Randy, that every day and every moment that I'm looking, how, Lord, might I glorify you in this moment and serve the other person? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here, please stand as we close out our time together.